Good morning. I think the uh, most sort of the moment of my nerves is the highest when I'm taking my mask off and I'm trying to get through my glasses and the microphone clip and everything. And I'm like, how's that going to work? But praise the Lord, it comes, does well. Why don't you bow with me as we pray together? Uh, Heavenly Father, we continue here this morning. Uh, those that have gathered on a live stream and those that are present here in person. And we are grateful that we can gather together in these various ways. We're grateful. We thank you, Lord, that we live in a land of freedom and peace. We recognize and acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters all over the world who do not uh, have that same privilege, who are persecuted for various reasons. We are grateful for this, and we also are grateful and acknowledge that we have the freedom to praise your name and to speak of your name and to be uh, gospeling the gospel, to have a Bible in our own language and to worship freely. And so, Lord Jesus, as we continue here this morning and as we open up Scripture, Holy Spirit, as we have already sung, move among us, be present as we know you are in all the various places where people are listening and gathered at this time. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So why church? Why this gathering together? Why do we do this? What's God's intention for us? I've been connected and involved with church for most of my life. And there are times when I wonder, what's it all about? We come to a new calendar year, and yes, um, you know, uh, I wonder why, what is God's intention? Uh, a friend of mine back in southern Manitoba, whose uh, father was a preacher, evangelist, and professor, he said to me at one point, he said, you know, the church as an institution is dead. Hmm, that's pretty strong words. But I wonder if at times you struggle with the idea and wondering about why church as well. I wonder if you struggle with that. I mean, we, we're challenged even to attend in person. And so uh, over the course from my parents' generation to my generation, attendance, uh, regular attendance has moved from four times a month to two times a month, in by definition of regular attendance. And now with the epoch we're in, the era, the time that we're in, you know, we're struggling. And, you, you know, you hang on maybe with live stream, and for a while you connected uh, during this time of worship at 9 a.m., but soon it starts slipping, and, and maybe, you, you know, you've been giving effort, you've been giving time, your finances, but you wonder why. And you struggle with that. What is God's intention for us as a, as a gathering, as a church? Is it just a, a social experiment? Erwin uh, McManus, uh, about a decade ago, was in Vancouver, and he was doing a project that later became the title of a book and a CD called, uh, or DVD called Soul Cravings. And he wanted to know what people were 
searching for, what they were longing for. And what he discovered as he interviewed people in Vancouver is that they really, uh, they valued and appreciated Jesus. But as it, when it comes to Christians and especially the church, they didn't really have a concept or an appreciation for it. And yet we are designed to connect. We're designed for community. Matthew Lieberman, professor, doctor, neuroscientist, sociologist, um, psychologist, what he discovered scientifically is that we're designed to be together in relationship and community. A friend of mine who is a city policeman, um, he and I were talking and, and he said, um, and this is back in, in Manitoba, he said when he's working with uh, uh, people and he's arresting and he's coming in contact with a lot of people, he would tell them, uh, if you want to know what your life is going to be like, look at the people you're hanging out with. He's trying to educate and help and inform some of the young people. But is that what church is? Is it just a social experiment? Um, or maybe it's a way of outsourcing spiritual formation. We drop off a child and we hope the professionals will do what they do. You know, it would be an interesting thing to ask your friends or your neighbors whether they go to church or not, but wouldn't it be interesting to ask them what their idea of church is and what is God's intention for church? I think that would be a fantastic question. To, to, I mean, we might not like what we hear, but it would be pretty interesting to hear. What, what is God's intention? When Jesus was living on earth 2,000 years ago, 30 A.D., his life, his crucifixion, death, burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. After that, churches began to pop up and develop and spread. And I was thinking about that. It's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, that, that after Jesus' ascension, that people would come to believe and follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, but then that people would gather together as churches. I mean, in Israel, in Turkey, in Greece, in Italy, churches started developing in congregations. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who converted from Judaism to follow, being a follower of Jesus, actually started a lot of these churches. He would go into a city like Calgary, and he would start having conversations, and suddenly he would make contact. People would say yes, but then they were inclined to come together. And he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write letters to these churches because it came in a time when churches too, too struggled with this question. What is God's intention? And they would, they would have difficulty and a challenge with the focus of why we gather together and what is God's intention and plan for the church. And so the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write some letters to the congregations. First and second Corinthians are letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth, which is in Greece. Kimberly and I had an opportunity, as you know, I've mentioned this a couple of times, that we've had an opportunity to go to the location where Corinth is. It's about an hour's drive west of Athens. 
And when we went on this tour, we were in Athens. Uh, Kimberly arranged a tour. It wasn't through a church or religious organization. It was a, just a mainstream tour. And this uh, person who was giving us this guided tour, as we were going from Athens to Corinth, uh, she spoke about um, Paul and where he had landed. And then as we got to the Corinth, she talked about Paul and his writings, and she talked about the Apostle Paul as a very real and important part of their history. It's true. And what did Paul say and write to the church in Corinth when they too were wondering and needed a reminder about the, God's intention for church? And so I invite you to turn with me if you have your Bibles or an iPhone, iPad, whatever you're using, turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to start reading at verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to start at verse 14. For the love of Christ urges us on. Your translation may say compels us. <laughs> For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we entreat you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There is so much here, but I want you to notice, first of all, what I want you to notice is the corporate language, the group language, the we language, the plural versus the singular language. He is speaking about the gathered group, the congregation. Listen to it again. I just want to read a few verses, 18 to 21. Listen to the plurality, the group. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making His appeal through us. 
We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is about the gathered group. This is about the congregation, not merely about individuals. Man, if we need to do some rerouting, they needed to reroute their way of thinking as well. Because believe you me, being self-centered and self-focused and individualistic is not a new invention in the 21st century. It has been going on since day one. But that's not what's happening here in Scripture. And do you notice also this word reconciliation? It happens quite a bit there. It means to bring together. It, the, sort of the epitome is peace. But, but we're, we're kind of confused even by the word peace. But this reconciliation, word reconciliation means bringing together. It means to make something right. But interestingly, the nuance is to reestablish. So the idea is that something has been disrupted or broken, and reconciling is bringing it together, bringing it back together, reestablishing and making something right. Imagine a moment where something was just perfect. Can you imagine with me from just... The idea, can you imagine a time when something was just ideal? It was perfect. It was beautiful. It was just joy. It was just pure. It was just excellent. We have those moments. Those moments are possible. And they're real. And there's a source for that. And in reality, God has meant us for all of that. But it's been disrupted. We live now in a time when good and pure and beautiful and lovely and wonderful is momentary because it's been disrupted by humans' errors, by humans' choices, and by alienating ourselves from the source of all that is good and pure and wonderful. And so God's project, His mission, is to reestablish that what is good and lovely and beautiful. He is, his mission is to reestablish that between us and Him between human beings and even with his creation. That's what reconcile means. That we put a good moment next to a good moment, next to a beautiful moment, next to a perfect moment, next to an ideal moment, and they are finally strung together until there's no disruption of it whatsoever. That's his mission. That's the mission of reconciliation. And it is something that God is doing now already. And someday he will complete it. And it will be for all eternity without end. Only that. Hallelujah. It's so awesome. And this is the message that Paul says 
the Lord has given to the church. This message, this message that God is doing this reconciling work. As a matter of fact, at one point, Paul says, church, this is, God has given you this ministry. He's given you this responsibility and work. Then he says, church, God has given you this message of reconciliation. And then he says, in fact, church, you are ambassadors. You're representatives of this message and what is going on here. And then he even says this, because listen, he says, God is making his appeal to the world through you. This message that God is desiring in his will is to make everything perfect and peaceful and pure. That message he is making through the church. But then I began to wonder. Um, so he's making this appeal through us. So is the church just a container? Like. The message of reconciliation. So the Lord has given us this message. And he's making this appeal through us. So are we just a container? Are we just like I was thinking of that idea of a message in a bottle. So the message of reconciliation. But is church just the container? Is that all we are? Is just the container? And the message, and, and we just need to make sure we get the message right. But notice what it says in verse 21. What does it say in verse 21? Because there's more to it. Paul writes in verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. This is what uh, some scholars refer to as a great interchange. Which is a little different than exchange. But this great interchange. Because here's what's happening. It is more than just the church as a container. What is happening is. Paul is saying that the Lord is taking our sin, our imperfections, the things that are, you know, our alienations, our bad attitudes. He's taking our uh, shortcomings, our, our negative thoughts. The things that we think about and do and have as our attitudes. He's taking those things. And instead of those being on us. Paul is saying. That he. Takes our sin. So that we might become. His righteousness that's the that's God's intention his intention is that we become his righteousness as one scholar put it not that we know his righteousness 
Not that we believe his righteousness, not even that we receive his righteousness, but that we become his righteousness. So he takes uh, our sin and we become his righteousness. We become the message. Earlier, in a few chapters earlier, Paul says, you are the letter that he is writing. But it is not just the container, but the content. We are the content and the container. The church is the message. But here's the hiccup. Here's part of the dissonance is that when we're sitting and we, you hear me say that, we're still thinking humanistically and individualistically because you're saying, well, wait a minute, what about Christ? What about Christ? And that's true. When I say we become the message, it is together with Him. It is always first Him and it is always first together with Him. And so even when we think in these terms that we become His righteousness, this is kind of insufficient because it still can feel like individually. But really when he says we become his righteousness. It's that the church becomes his righteousness. Not merely an individual. But the community. Together. The community. And so I think I was trying to think how to actually convey this. We need a bigger blazer. I thought maybe this would do. To kind of cover everything well it still doesn't cover the whole congregation but that's the idea that it's together with the Lord Jesus Christ in community so community is actually the goal the telos the the end point is community union with God but community is also the means. Community as in the Trinity, but community with the church, the congregation. It's community. We do this together. We participate with Him. We participate with Him. Participation is actually part of being in community with the Lord. He is a mission-minded God. He is active. He is moving. He is seeking. He is in the mission of reconciling. So when we are united with Him, church, when we are with Him, then we are also necessarily in participation. In Him means to be in participation, being active with Him. One scholar put it this way, uh, fire exists by burning. So too, the church exists by being on mission. Whoa. Think of that. As fire exists by burning, so too, the church of Jesus Christ exists by burning. But it's with him. Community together with the Lord. And so in one sense, you know, the pressure is off. 
of us in one sense as a church because it is initiated by the Lord and we are joining Him. We are participating together with Him. So it isn't up to us, but it certainly involves us. The Lord is not dependent on us. We are dependent on Him. We don't control Him, but He involves us and He invites us to, into union with Him, which also means participation with Him. And what's so beautiful about this is that it means that everyone is valued. Absolutely everyone is valued. At times, Paul uses the word all. At times, he says the world. <laughs> you know, it's just everybody. Everybody's involved in this. That's what makes the congregation. And we participate together with him. When we are together in this gathering in person in live stream, the Lord is here and we are participating together with Him. When you're in your community groups, in your neighborhoods, you're participating together with Him. Even when we are by ourselves or with a friend or with a neighbor at the grocery store, and even there, we are ne it's never individual. It's never alone. It's always together in community with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always together with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's present there. We're with Him. He's with us. We're always together. Amen. But the implications of this mean that there is a requirement for change and transformation. So when we come together, we're invited to change and be transformed because this exposes our motives. It begins in verse 14, Paul says, we are compelled by our love for Christ. So we gather together and we are His righteousness and, and we participate not because we earn anything or not because of any rules or laws, but it begins because of our, our motive is our love for Jesus Christ. And so the question then is, do we have a love for Jesus Christ? And what is the reason for that love? And if we don't, then how do we kindle that love? Because that is the only and the best motivation for anything else. It also exposes our self-centeredness. And our constant penchant to hear and think individualistically. Even when we're reading a letter in the Bible that's written to a church that uses the plural, somehow we still manage to think individualistically. But, but this is just so wonderfully Christ-centered and other-focused. So it's entirely communal. It's entirely relationship and community-oriented. It also exposes our prejudices. So this is all about transforming our motives, transforming our, our focus, our self-orientation, and our prejudice. You know, Paul says, um, so we no longer consider people in worldly terms. In worldly, the way the world looks at human beings, we don't look at human beings that way. We look at human beings the way Jesus Christ looks at human beings. And friends, that's another way when we are doing that, we are God's righteousness, but it requires transformation as we come together. It exposes our prejudices. 
There's a great writer. We're going to get into this as we get further into the year. But he gives two questions as we consider people. He gives two questions to think about. One question is, who created them? And who died for them? You start with those two questions, it changes how we look and think about anybody. Who created them? And who died for them? It's magnificent and powerful.